0: I invite you to make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verse 30 and 31, and then also James chapter 3 and verse 17. And our series, Conformed to the Image of Jesus, and our focus today is that Jesus is wisdom from God. As we're thinking about what spiritual formation is, it's the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. For the glory of God, for our good, and for the blessing of others. Our being conformed to the image of Jesus is dependent on the Spirit of God working in us and the Word of God applied to our lives. And I know one thing about reaching any type of goal in life. It's important to begin with the end in mind. So what is the spiritual goal or the preferred vision that you would like to reach for your life? I believe Jesus is the goal and his life is the preferred vision for our lives. So with that in mind, we're considering the characteristics of Jesus that we want to be conformed to and the things that we want to emulate in our lives, you might remember that our theme verse is Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. To be conformed means to receive the same form as, or to render like. So we talk about being conformed to the image of. Of Jesus. We're talking about receiving the same form as or being rendered like our Savior. And that's only possible through the sanctifying work of God in our lives. When we come to faith in Christ, we have been sanctified because of our position. We're set apart in him. We are being sanctified in the sense that our lives are growing progressively to be more like Jesus. And we will be sanctified when God finishes the good work in us that he has started. So as disciples of Jesus, we want to be conformed to the character of Jesus, to the life of Jesus, and to the death of Jesus. And that requires that we have to comprehend and desire and pursue conformity to the image of Jesus, that we cannot be passive in this. Yes, we are resting on the finished work of God, but at the same time, we are leaning into what God has for us. So that we might grow in him. So we now turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 and 31. And this is what the Bible says. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus. Who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Verse 31. In order that as it is written. Let the one who boasts, boast In the Lord. Over the next four weeks, we're going to consider Jesus as our wisdom from God, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. When Paul opens this letter in chapter one, he makes it very clear that God opposes the wisdom of the world and he will destroy the wisdom of the wise. There is no wise man, there's no scribe, there's no debater who can do what Jesus has done. There is no one who can contend with God. Now I find it interesting sometimes that uh, the most educated people of all give the least concern to God. That's not always the case, thankfully, and certainly not the case in, in our midst. But you see a lot of people who begin to depend on those things. They depend on their education. They depend on the wisdom of the world. They depend on whatever stature they have uh, risen to in life. And when we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to him through the message of the cross, so that God's wisdom is of a different order. So Paul says the Jews wanted a sign. The Greeks sought after wisdom. And what did God give? He gave a crucified savior. Brett McCracken wrote in the wisdom pyramid, he said, it's significant that in scripture, wisdom is often associated with a path. Are you going in the right direction? Are you veering off of the path? Do you know where you are on the map? What's your compass? And at the end of the day, he says, wisdom is less about information than it is our orientation meaning that all the geographic data points in the world are useless if we have no sense of north. And then he says this, All of us wander in whichever nomadic direction our hearts choose until we submit to the authority of God's good compass, and he alone illuminates the path of wisdom. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, As the sailor locates his position on the sea by shooting the sun, So may we get our moral bearings by looking to God. We must begin with God. We are right when and only when we stand in a right position relative to God. And we are wrong so far and so long as we stand in any other position. So I want you to hear this clearly because this is going to be our focus and our guide for this message today. Jesus Christ perfectly reveals the wisdom of God. He embodies it. We find the triune God active in creation in the very beginning. We see in the book of Proverbs the personification of wisdom. I believe that the personification of wisdom in Proverbs is none other than a personification of Jesus himself. Divine wisdom is the Son. He's the image and the only begotten of the Father, and he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And what God does in his wisdom, as it is embodied in Jesus and granted to us, is that God invites us to a way of life that is in harmony, I believe, with both the created order and God's redemptive work. So let me say it this way. A Christian theology of wisdom begins and ends with Christ. He's the focus. Wisdom, by way of definition, is the ability to discern or to judge what is true and right or lasting. And of course, the Bible says that uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge is the information that we gain through experience, reasoning, or acquaintance. So the way that wisdom and knowledge are paired together is that wisdom gives us the ability to discern and to determine the direction. Information gives us the specifics to apply. We can be guided by information and by knowledge, but if it's not encapsulated in the wisdom of God, it's always going to fall short and potentially lead us in the wrong direction. Now, in James chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and he will give it to you. So if you need wisdom, you just have to ask for it. God says he wants to give you wisdom. He wants to pour out wisdom on you. He wants to give you this wisdom generously, but you need to ask for it. That's all you have to do. And then we find a description of heavenly wisdom in James chapter 3 and verse 17. Let's look at this verse now. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. Jesus came down from above, and I believe he is the embodiment of the wisdom that is found here in James 3 and verse 17. So if Jesus came down from above, and if Jesus is the embodiment of the wisdom that is found here in James 3 and verse 17, then what are the characteristics of wisdom that we want to be conformed to? Remember, if we're going to begin with the end in mind, if Jesus is going to be our focus, if Jesus is the one who is the embodiment of wisdom, if he's the one who was active in creation? If he's the one who is the embodiment and the personification of wisdom in Proverbs, if he's the one who came from heaven to earth and now he is the representation of all of these things that are good and righteous and true, then what are they? Well, there are five that I want to draw your attention to. The first characteristic is that Jesus as wisdom is pure. So the Bible says, the wisdom from above is first pure. The word pure means free from moral stain or free from impurity, without impurity. The reference is to the absence of any sinful attitude, motivation, or action. Now, obviously, Jesus is the only one who uh, qualifies for that, ultimately, but he's drawing us to himself. So part of being conformed to the image of Jesus is realizing that we have such a long way to go, but we're works in progress, that that God is growing us and making us more like Jesus so that we are uh, growing deeper and more mature in our relationship with him. Purity in the Bible communicates holiness. And when God created the heavens and the earth, everything was pure. God looked at his creation and he said that it was good. It was without decay. It was without sin. It was without death. But you know the rest of the story. When sin entered into the world because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, it corrupted purity and the consequence was death. Spiritual death and then ultimately death physical death, and then even beyond that, eternal separation from God. Purity can only be reclaimed through repentance and faith in Jesus. As we look to him and we place our faith in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, that's when we are reconciled to God. That's when we're redeemed. That's when that purity in us is restored because of who we are in Christ. That's what justification is all about, that God sees us not through the sinners that we were or even the, the people that we are now, but he sees us through the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And based on that, he grows us to be more like him. Now, I'm told that in the world of science, one of the most basic ways to check the purity of any substance is to compare that substance with a certified pure example. And when they do that, the comparisons can reveal some things. They can reveal some things upon a visual inspection or upon the actual content of the sample, uh, or maybe even depending on what it is by a smell test to determine whether or not uh, something is pure. Spiritually speaking, my purity and your purity can be checked by how well we compare to Jesus, who is the only one who is completely pure. In that regard, he's the pure sample. He's the one that we're being compared to. So this is both reality and it's aspirational. And one of the mistakes that we make sometimes in our Christian lives is, is we compare ourselves more to other people more than we do to Jesus. Jesus we think, well, I'm not as bad as him or I'm not as bad as her. And we come up with all these comparisons in our lives. That's not who we're supposed to be comparing ourselves to. We're supposed to be looking to Jesus because he's doing a work in us that is undeserved, but yet it is freely given. And without purity in our relationship with God, nothing else matters. So we have positional holiness by the blood of Jesus we're set apart for him. And then we have practical holiness. That's basically how we live our lives. The decisions we make, uh, the things we care about, the things that we involve ourselves in, that's practical holiness. Positional holiness depends on the justification that we have in Jesus. Practical holiness depends on the sanctification that God works out in our lives in Jesus. And there's an end goal for all of this. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 and 3, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, listen to this, He appears, speaking of Jesus, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. The effect... On our lives knowing that Jesus will return is that we are motivated to be more like Jesus in the way we think in our motivations and in our lives purity will put you out of step with the world but it will put you in step with God let me say that again for emphasis purity will put you out of step with the world but it will put you in step with God. Jesus as wisdom is pure. The second characteristic is that Jesus as wisdom is peace-loving. So what it says, wisdom from above is then peace-loving. The word peace-loving or peaceable relates to our attitude in times of conflict, and it literally means peaceful. The world around us is filled with turmoil and conflict and strife. Constantly there are divisions and upset and yet here we have Jesus as our wisdom who is peace-loving, peaceable, peaceful. The preacher R. Kent Hughes told a Rather human, humorous story about a couple who had just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And someone asked the husband the secret of their marital bliss. He responded, Well, the old man drawled, the wife and I had this agreement when we first got married, and it went like this When she was bothered about something, she'd just tell me, and she'd get it off her chest. And if I was mad at her about something, then I was able to take a long walk. I suppose you could attribute our happy marriage to the fact that I have largely led an outdoor life. (laughs) There are indeed proper times to take a walk. But that's not what James is recommending here. That's not the type of peace that he's presenting to us. It doesn't depend on walking away from conflict. It depends on developing and nurturing a peaceful spirit. A life that is at peace with God, that's at peace with yourself, and is at peace with others. Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I believe when we are at peace with God and at peace with ourselves, then what that does is that naturally draws us into peaceful relationships with others. Now, obviously, this is not at the expense of truth. We're not giving away the basics of the faith, the essentials of what we believe, the convictions that we hold uh, very close. We're not giving these things away for the sake of peace. That's not what this means. But it means in our disposition, in the attitude of our hearts, then we are peaceful people. You ever notice that a lot of people just enjoy living in the middle of drama? They constantly have conflict with other people. They're always angry about one thing or the other. And I want to tell you something as directly as I can. If you are the person who's always in the middle of the drama... And you're always having conflict with other people, you might want to take a look in the mirror because it could very well be that you are the source of the conflict rather than the source of peace. And that's not how we want our lives to be in Christ because the Bible says if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12 and verse 18. I think St. Francis understood this As his prayer beautifully recalls, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there's hate, may I bring love. Where offense, may I bring pardon. And may I bring unison in place of discord. Now, you're not always going to see eye to eye with everyone. We have different personalities. We have different perspectives on things. We come from different experiences and, and backgrounds. But the beauty of who we are in Christ is that we can overcome those things and we can be peacemakers and God can give us the wisdom to handle any situation that we encounter if we look to Jesus as wisdom who is peace-loving. The third characteristic is that Jesus as wisdom is gentle and reasonable. It says here, wisdom from above is gentle, and the word compliant is used as well as reasonable. The opposite of this is earthly wisdom. You notice how earthly wisdom is often arrogant and stubborn. Earthly wisdom puts the focus on self rather than the focus on the Savior. Earthly wisdom says, I've got to have my way because I know better than you and I'm always right, rather than saying we want to go God's way. And I think what's being taught here is that someone who is gentle is non-combative and they are non-argumentative. There's actually several words that are used in the New Testament that are translated as gentle or gentleness. Uh, The word that is used here is related to legal fairness and it indicates an equitable dealing with other people. You remember the situation that Israel found themselves in. They had broken the law of God. They rejected him again and again. They broke their covenant. And rather than God abandoning them to judgment, which he could have rightly done, they deserved it. He satisfied his justice in Jesus. And when we exercise godly wisdom, what we're doing is we're expressing God's gentleness Jesus, as the one who is gentle, is the one who desires to heal rather than to hurt. And that should be our mindset as we go into situations, even very difficult and challenging ones, is that we should desire to heal rather than to hurt. The Apostle Paul appealed to the humility and the gentleness of Christ. And he told people to follow his example in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. He said, now I, Paul, myself entreat you by the humility and the gentleness of Christ. Paul was saying, I am calling you to the humility and the gentleness of Christ. This is a clarion call to the church that if we want to be like Jesus, then we ought to answer the call to come to the Humility and the gentleness of Christ. Paul also taught Titus to teach the church in Titus 3 and verse 2, not to be contentious, but to be gentle, showing all humility toward all men. Let me give you application of this. If you see someone who is loud, purposefully drawing attention to themselves and is argumentative and always has to be right, you can be certain that they are not following after the wisdom of Jesus because Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Philippians 4 and verse 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all men, because the Lord is at hand. You say, well, how do I know if I'm growing in this regard? How do you do under pressure? What do you do when things don't go your way? Maybe when someone else speaks to you in a way that offends you or does something wrong toward you. What's your default response? Now listen, none of us are perfect in this. Sometimes we say and do things that we have to back up and repent of and ask forgiveness for. But I'm talking about the spirit and the attitude of your life. What is being lived out in you? The word reasonable also means considerate, as I've already noted. It's the kind of person who, even when they're wronged, is willing to forego their rights for the sake of others. A person with this quality is going to listen well. They're going to listen carefully because they want to know the truth. And again, this is not a lack of convictions. It is instead the ability to disagree agreeably. And Jesus as wisdom is gentle and he's reasonable. The fourth characteristic is that Jesus as wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. So what it says here. Wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy is when God extends forgiveness to us in salvation and when he withholds punishment that is rightly deserved. Grace is blessing the sinner undeservedly. So mercy is when we don't get what we deserve and uh, spiritually speaking, that would be hell an eternal separation from God, grace is when we get what we don't deserve, which is heaven and a relationship with God. And in Jesus, we experience a superabundant amount of both mercy and grace in Jesus. He gives it to us. He grants it to us. God blesses us in that way in our Savior. The late evangelist uh, Louis Palau told a story from history about a mother who once approached the ruler Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son and when she approached the notorious ruler the emperor replied that the young man had actually uh, committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded his death but I don't ask for justice the mother explained I plead for mercy but your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Our world lacks mercy and vengeance is the guide. And yet God calls us to a higher standard because of who he is. You understand that God doesn't just extend mercy, but God is merciful. God doesn't just extend grace, but he is the embodiment of grace. God doesn't just give love, but he is the one who is love. In his lamentations 2 and verse 22 says, through the though the Lord's mercies, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is the faithfulness of God. And I say, has God forgiven you? Then you ought to be willing to forgive others when they ask for that forgiveness. Has God been patient with you? Then you ought to be willing to be patient with others. Has God been compassionate toward you? Then you ought to be compassionate toward others. Has God lifted you up? Then you ought to be willing to lift others up. This is what it means to have the wisdom of Jesus, who is full of mercy and good fruit. And evidently, wisdom is demonstrated by the fruit it produces. Fruit is used in the Bible to describe a person's outward actions that result from the condition of their heart. When you grow in wisdom, your life will be full of the character traits of God. Now remember how we get to that point. When we're confronted with the gospel and the Holy Spirit brings conviction upon our lives and we realize who Jesus is as the Son of God and that he lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and he was buried and on the third day he was raised from the dead... And we hear the promise of Scripture that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and we are saved. What happens to us in that moment when we are saved is that we stand forgiven before a holy God, justified by grace through faith. The Spirit of God takes up residence in our lives so that we are baptized in the Spirit, we are indwelled by the Spirit, we are filled by the Spirit, and it's the Spirit who produces fruit in our lives. So when we think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all of this comes as a result of knowing Jesus and having the Spirit of God in our lives. And we should desire that our lives would bear good fruit as a testimony of Christ and as a blessing to others so that our lives make a difference not just going through the motions. We're not just saying the right things, but we want to be the very expression of Jesus on this earth as his work is in our lives, as the one who is full of mercy and good fruit. And then there's a fifth and last characteristic. Jesus as wisdom is unwavering and he's sincere. Wisdom from above is unwavering, and it is without pretense. The word translated as unwavering is also translated as uh, impartial or without partiality. It's interesting that it's used only one time in the New Testament. Um, It essentially means to hold firm to the same standard all the time. So it's it's not a double-minded man. It's not somebody who's Uh, Tossed to and fro by the waves and the winds It's someone who is anchored down In what is right and true and good and pure and holy in jesus And it's living by that consistent standard it means to be Unwavering in your life steady As you live out your life for christ and again, we can't do this on our own because sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down. And depending on the day or the week, we might kind of be all over the place as far as our flesh and the things that we want to do. So how do you overcome that? How do you overcome those ups and downs and being all over the place? By continuing to look to Jesus and ask him for wisdom, knowing that he's unwavering. And then the last phrase, without pretense, means without hypocrisy. Now, the Bible's very clear. Hypocrisy is sin. If you know anything about the Bible at all, you know that originally it meant uh, not play acting spiritually to not be hypocritical. And it referred literally to the ancient Greek plays where the actor would wear a mask while pretending to be someone else. So one actor would actually play several different parts in the same play depending on whatever mask it was that he was using at the time. And we also know that Jesus issued some of his harshest criticism uh, and condemnation for hypocrites. He spoke very directly to the, to the Pharisees about their hypocrisy. And we should strive to live lives that were th- are without hypocrisy or just state it another way. When people see us, it should be what you see is what you get. There's no pretense. We're not play acting. We're genuine. And I think one of the greatest compliments that we might get paid in this life is that we are always the same wherever we are and whoever we're with. And that only comes from following after the wisdom of Jesus. Now, I believe one of the greatest issues in Christian homes And one of the reasons, not by any stretch the only reason, but one of the reasons that sometimes children who grow up in a Christian home walk away from it when they have the opportunity to do it is because of hypocrisy in the home. Where their parents might be saying one thing, but their lives reflect something altogether different. And that is very confusing For young people. And it will lead people down a path of being discontent with the faith that they are presented with. And we should strive to be genuine people in our failures, our faults, our weaknesses, our strengths. We are who we are. We're quick to depend on the mercy and the grace of God. And we want to build a consistency. And the only way that you can do that is as you follow Jesus, the one who is unwavering and sincere. Now look at this verse, and then I'm going to close. Colossians 2 and verse 3 says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's a reference to Christ. Wisdom hidden does not mean concealed in this context, but rather stored up as a treasure. That's what it means. Wisdom is in Jesus Christ. So think about it this way. He's the storehouse. He's the one who embodies wisdom and then God freely gives wisdom through him and it's ours for the receiving. If we have faith in Jesus Christ We can freely access the wisdom of God. Remember, God says, I want to give it to you liberally. I want to be generous in giving you wisdom. All you've got to do is ask. Well, where does that treasure storehouse come from? Jesus. He's the one. And when we have faith in him, we can freely access it. But I'm not sure everybody does that as consistently as they should. I'm a little bit enamored with stories of modern day treasure hunters. The latest treasure trove to be unearthed was a shipwreck with more than, get this, $22 billion worth of gold that was discovered at the bottom of the Caribbean. True story. The discovery was made in 2015, although remarkably they kept it under wraps until 2018, probably upon fear of death. But at any rate, it's been dubbed The Holy Grail of shipwrecks. The San Jose was traveling from Panama to Colombia when it went down in 1708 during a battle with British ships in the War of Spanish Succession. It lay on the bottom of the ocean for 300 years until it was discovered using an unmanned underwater vehicle called the Remus 6000. It remains untouched, and you might be able to guess why. Governments are fighting over who has the right to claim it. As significant as a $22 billion treasure trove of gold on the bottom of the Caribbean is, the wisdom of God is far more valuable, and let me tell you why. That $22 billion treasure trove It's limited, it's earthly, it has an expiration date, so to speak, but God's wisdom is eternal. There is no expiration date to it, and it is available to us. The Bible says wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. That's what we want to do as we look to Jesus, who is our wisdom. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment. As we come toward a close of the service, I don't know what all is on your heart and your mind today, but maybe you've never come to faith in Christ for your salvation. You don't have this wisdom that I've been talking about. Maybe you're looking for direction in your life, but you, you know that you don't have it. What well, all begins with the fear of God, it all begins through repentance and faith in Jesus. You say today, I'm not a Christian, but I want to be. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Somebody here needs to be saved today to trust in Jesus, in Jesus only, for forgiveness and eternal life. And that's your first step toward wisdom is to embrace the one who is the embodiment of wisdom by faith. But then also know there are a lot of believers here who you're dealing with unique situations. you it might be something that you're dealing with in your own personal life. It might be something at home, in a relationship. It might be something that you're trying to apply wisdom to in your work life or something spiritual that you feel God is calling you to, and you just need wisdom. You need the wisdom of God. Well, the way to get it is to ask for it. Would you take just a moment in whatever The situation is that you need wisdom in and ask God to give it to you and to show you with clarity what he wants you to do. You know, this is true for us as a church as well. We can make decisions based on our own opinions or our own preferences or our own likes. But it would be a whole lot better if we made decisions based on the wisdom of God. So let's ask him for it and he'll give it. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for this gift, this treasure trove of wisdom that is made freely available to us through Christ as our Savior. Help us not to live in the flesh. Help us not to lean into worldly wisdom but help us to depend on your wisdom that is eternal. And whatever folks just lifted up to you in prayer in these moments, I trust that you've received those prayers and you're going to answer them because you told us you would. You've told us to ask. So we're asking. And God, we pray that there'd be good fruit that would come out of it in our lives, in our church, and ultimately in your kingdom. We'll give this time of closing response over to you, God, and we ask that you'd work in it however you see fit, and we'll give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.